This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Howland Island was full of birdsong. Frigate birds, terns, and boobies sang their cawing, clicking tunes all along the little speck of land, an avian refuge in the midst of the roiling Pacific Ocean. They screeched on the sand and sang from the craggy rocks. Some of them perched on a few man-made wooden structures that clustered the island's west side. Amongst these was a small house. But aside from the birds singing on its roof, it was quiet and still. No one disturbed the little kitchen or living room. No one shifted in the tidily made-up bed. The house was all ready for Amelia Earhart, the most famous aviatrix in the world. But she wasn't there. And she was never going to arrive. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
to stream conspiracy theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type conspiracy theories in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Amelia Earhart, the iconic, record-breaking aviatrix who became a symbol of American adventure, innovation, and feminism. And that was all before she became one of the most famous missing persons in history. Last week, we followed her final ambitious flight, a global circumnavigation. Had she completed it, Amelia would have been the first woman in history to do so. But she didn't complete it. On July 2nd, 1937, somewhere near Howland Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Amelia Earhart, her co-pilot Fred Noonan, and her Lockheed Electra plane all disappeared. No bodies and no scraps of the plane were found by the enormous search party. The official explanation is that the plane crashed straight into the Pacific thanks to a lack of fuel. And Amelia, Fred, and their plane all sank to the bottom of the ocean. But not everyone is convinced that's the full story. This week, we're going to examine some of the alternative explanations. Theory number one. Amelia and Fred flew into Japanese-controlled territory when they couldn't locate Howland Island. The Japanese took them prisoner and then either executed the pair or forced Amelia to work as one of the infamous Tokyo Roses. Theory number two. Amelia was taken prisoner by the Japanese, but she was actually spying on them for the United States. Then, when World War II ended, she came home to the U.S. and started a new life as Irene Bolam. Theory number three. The most popular and convincing of our three theories argues that Amelia and Fred landed at Niku Mororo Island, one of the Phoenix Islands 350 miles southwest of Howland Island. This argument suggests that they crash-landed onto the Niku Mororo coral reef and lived out their final days on the tiny island. The Pacific Ocean covers more than 30% of the Earth's surface. It's larger than the landmass of all the continents combined. Which means it's very hard for any one nation, even one as powerful and well-resourced as the United States, to know everything that's happening across those waters. Back in 1937, this was relevant, since the United States was starting to face some tensions with its neighbor across the vast expanse, Japan. World War II was still two years off, and the attack on Pearl Harbor even further away. But on July 7, 1937, less than a week after Amelia Earhart disappeared, Japan invaded China, a move which the United States strongly opposed. The invasion led President Franklin Roosevelt to impose sanctions on Japan, meant to deprive it of the resources it needed to fight its war in China. This, ultimately, in 1940, led Japan to form an alliance with Germany and the Axis powers. That's a quick rundown of some very complicated international politics. 
But what matters here is that these explosive tensions were already brewing in the South Pacific on July 2, 1937, when Amelia Earhart disappeared. She, her navigator Fred Noonan, and their Lockheed Electra plane vanished during their flight from Ley, New Guinea to Howland Island, 2,556 miles away. The official explanation for their disappearance, put forward by the Navy after an extensive manhunt, was that Amelia and Fred drowned after their plane crashed and sank. But considering the socio-political landscape at the time, it's no surprise that some Americans began to speculate about a possible Japanese involvement in Amelia's disappearance. Additionally, there were those who suspected the big effort to locate Amelia was covering something else up. Within six months, rumors were circulating that the United States had used its massive Earhart rescue mission as an excuse to fly over the Japanese-mandated Marshall Islands in search of forbidden military installations. But it was a 1943 propaganda film released a few years later called Flight for Freedom that really launched speculation about what exactly happened to Amelia Earhart and how the Japanese might have been involved. The film was clearly about Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, although it gave the famous aviatrix and her navigator different names. And according to its plot, her global circumnavigation was a spy mission for the United States. Ultimately, the Amelia character vanishes somewhere into the Pacific. This was not a fact-based historical film. It was released in the midst of World War II, and all the Japanese characters are painted as darkly, uniformly evil. But it was a relative hit, earning $1.5 million by January 1944. And thanks to its success, it popularized two ideas. One, that Amelia was captured by the Japanese, and two, that Amelia was a spy for the U.S. These ideas would prove surprisingly trenchant and are the launch point for several of the most popular theories about Amelia's disappearance. Which brings us to our first theory. Amelia was captured by the Japanese and was either forced to work as a so-called Tokyo Rose, held in captivity, or killed. The Tokyo Rose theory was one of the earlier versions of the theory and a bit of a floater. It's not closely tied to any clear narrative of how Amelia ended up in Japanese hands. Well, the rumor spread in the aftermath of World War II, when several soldiers claimed they had heard Amelia Earhart's voice broadcasting Japanese propaganda across the South Pacific during the war. They could never miss that distinctive mid-Atlantic lilt, they claimed. Soldiers gave the English-speaking broadcasters of these propaganda programs the collective name of Tokyo Rose and often speculated about the identity of the women behind the voices. The game was a welcome distraction from the harsh realities of war. But a few of these soldiers became so convinced that the voice they heard was Amelia Earhart that even George Putnam, Amelia's husband, decided it was worth checking out the lead. After listening to recording after recording, however, George determined that none of these voices were his wife's. And as the man with the highest stake in finding her, it seems unlikely that he would have passed up even the slightest chance that it might be Amelia on the other end of that recording. Almost two decades later, however, 
the capture and kill theory introduced a much more comprehensive narrative of how Amelia might have ended up in Japanese hands. The theory gained traction and detail in a 1960 biography of Amelia titled Daughter of the Sky. The biography actually starts by calling the idea of Japanese capture the great rumor and attributes it largely to the influence of flight for freedom. But then it launches into eyewitness testimony from a native of Saipan, one of the Marshall Islands controlled by the Japanese when Amelia disappeared. Josephine Blanco Akiyama was an 11-year-old child back in 1937, but she vividly remembered a plane landing on the island in the midst of a hot July. Two Caucasian pilots, one female and one male, were taken into custody by the Japanese, she remembered. They were then shot by a firing squad in the woods. Josephine remembered the sound. Journalists at papers around the country picked up the story. But it had several major problems. One, it was based on the testimony of a single child reported years after the fact. Children's memories are highly suggestible. And two, there was a practical issue. Saipan, 2,751 miles away from Howland Island, was way off Amelia and Fred's course. How could they possibly have ended up there? In 1966, another book entitled The Search for Amelia Earhart by CBS correspondent Fred Groner addressed these issues and became a bestseller. Groner, citing testimony from multiple other Saipan Islanders, argued that Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, were taken prisoner by the Japanese after landing in the Marshall Islands, far closer to Howland than Saipan, although still over 900 miles off route. Only then were they transported by ship to Saipan, where they died in captivity rather than being executed. Groner also brings up Fred's tendency to drink and suggests that navigation issues may have stemmed from the fact that he was drunk during the flight. This ties in nicely with the mysterious personnel problems Amelia reported during the trip. But there's little evidence to support it. While there are reports that Fred could at times be a heavy drinker, there was no indication that he ever drank on the job. Plus, while Amelia certainly enjoyed a risk every now and then, she was too experienced to hazard a long, challenging flight with a drunk navigator. A similar lack of concrete evidence and a preponderance of unsolved questions plagues the entire capture-and-kill theory. Japanese military records from this time period show no record of Fred and Amelia being picked up in the South Pacific or held prisoner, much less executed. And no bones or personal effects belonging to Amelia or Fred have been recovered in Saipan or the Marshall Islands. It seems more likely they've sunk somewhere in the enormous stretches of the Pacific Ocean surrounding Howland. The Navy was tasked with searching for the lost aeronauts across an expanse with the surface area of Texas. It was impossible to get eyes on every bit of ocean, much less the shadowy depths of the water. In addition, several experienced pilots have pointed out that, based on Amelia's final transmissions to the Itasca, 
She seems to have been at least relatively close to Howland when she stopped transmitting, and she was definitely low on fuel. While the Marshall Islands are closer to Howland than Saipan is, it's still highly unlikely that Amelia and Fred could have made it there with their low fuel levels. The Marshall Islands are about 950 miles away from Howland, which is more than four hours' journey at the speed Amelia and Fred were flying. Even if they crash-landed on the water closer to Howland and made it into their raft, it's unlikely they would have floated that far. Well, these issues haven't stopped folks from advocating for the capture-and-kill theory since the 1960s. One of the most compelling additions to the story came in the form of a photo from the National Archives. It depicts the harbor of one of the Marshall Islands and a barge with a plane on it. Well, some theorists claim the plane is Earhart's. Another new piece of evidence is a metal scrap that could possibly be a part of Earhart's plane found on one of the Marshall Islands. But the photo was published in a 1935 Japanese travelogue, two years before Earhart's disappearance. And the metal scrap doesn't add any definitive evidence to the theory. It still rests almost entirely on witness testimony recorded in Groner's book. And as other researchers have found on returning to Saipan and the Marshall Islands, most residents deny Amelia and Fred were ever there. It may be that for whatever reason, Groner's witnesses simply told the eager journalist what he wanted to hear. The fact that this whole theory originated out of an anti-Japanese propaganda film helps explain its popularity without lending it any credibility. Amidst World War II, many Americans were looking for reasons to hate the Japanese, and this theory gave them one. Well, but from that starting point, the theory grew into its own story. We give it a 3 out of 10 because of the eyewitness accounts, which are difficult to discredit entirely. But we don't see much convincing evidence for this theory. Our next theory, however, puts forward the most compelling piece of evidence there is. Amelia Earhart herself. Coming up, we explore the possibility that Amelia not only lived through her disappearance, but she came back to America to live in New Jersey under an assumed identity, finally ready to retire from her life as a spy. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Amelia Earhart, her navigator Fred Noonan, and her Lockheed Electra plane disappeared on July 2, 1937, somewhere near Howland Island in the Pacific Ocean. The official explanation was that the plane crashed into the water and Amelia and Fred drowned. But almost immediately, alternative theories started to emerge. Many of these centered on the idea that Amelia and Fred were taken prisoner by the Japanese and can trace their roots to one World War II-era propaganda film, Flight for Freedom. And our second theory is no different. This theory argues that Amelia was taken prisoner by Japanese, just like our previous theory. But in this case, she wasn't just an unlucky adventurer caught up in an international conflict. She was a part of the U.S.-Japanese conflict herself, working as a spy. And she didn't die in the war that followed her capture. She was eventually repatriated to the U.S. and given a new identity in an early version of the Witness Protection Program. Flight for Freedom might be the genesis of this spy idea, but it was a 1970 book by former military pilot Joe Class, based on research by former Air Force Major Joseph Jervis, titled Amelia Earhart Lives, that developed the idea into a full-fledged theory. According to Class, Amelia was recruited by the United States government to spy on the Japanese during her global circumnavigation. He comes to this conclusion by examining her route. Why choose to stop on Howland Island when there were better, more established routes nearby? so that she would have a chance to spy on the Japanese. But her role wasn't exactly to collect information herself. She was meant to get lost in the area near the Japanese-ruled Marshall Islands so that the U.S. would have an excuse to come rescue her. While they were performing their rescue mission, they would also have the opportunity to do some pre-war reconnaissance on the Marshall Islands. But the excursion went wrong. The Japanese intercepted Amelia's messages to the Itasca and shot down the Lockheed Electra, taking Amelia and Fred prisoner from the wreckage. Suspecting they were spies and knowing the value of the famous Amelia Earhart, they took their prisoners to Saipan and then Japan, where they were kept throughout World War II as hostages. Here, Class echoes one of the earlier theories. He claims that Amelia likely worked as a Tokyo Rose. He points to the fact that some of the Saipan locals refer to an American spy who was briefly held prisoner on their island as Tokyo Rosa. He also points out that only one woman was tried and convicted of being the Tokyo Rose, when it's clear there were multiple women doing the job. As in our previous theory, we have witness testimony bolstering up the theorist's claims. And again, it's the only thing separating the theory from pure imaginative speculation and a playful game of connect the dots. But there's more to this particular theory. 
Class argues that the Japanese had Amelia broadcast as Tokyo Rose, not simply to have another propaganda broadcaster, but rather as a means of proving to the U.S. intelligence service that they had her in hand. George, her husband, was responsible for giving the U.S. positive identification of the voice, although publicly he denied that he had made that identification. Then the Japanese tried to use their prisoner of war to blackmail President Roosevelt into a more favorable peace deal at the end of hostilities. But Roosevelt refused to be swayed, in part because to do so would be to publicly reveal secret American espionage activities. This argument, while fascinating, is pure speculation. But don't throw out the whole theory just yet. There's a whole other leg to it. Let's move on to the post-war period. Class argued that in 1945, U.S. forces liberated Amelia and secretly repatriated her to the U.S. Fred, he suggests, was dead by this point. But the U.S. government was loath to reveal that Amelia was still alive because to do so would mean revealing their own espionage activities. So in America, Class argues, Amelia assumed a new name and began a new, quiet life. But the most shocking part of the whole story is that Class named a specific woman as his repatriated Amelia, Irene Bolam of New Jersey. Class was apparently completely convinced that Irene was actually Amelia. He believed Joseph Jervis when he said that he saw her at a social event in 1965 and knew it had to be Amelia. She looked just like her, or an older version of her anyway. Plus, he had reported that Irene was wearing decorations that had been presented to Amelia. Specifically, a medallion that was presented to Earhart by President Hoover in 1932. A miniature major's gold leaf rank insignia and an enameled miniature red, white, and blue ribbon signifying the distinguished flying cross. But in reality, based on a photograph that Joseph Jervis himself took at the event, it appears Irene is wearing one round medallion like the one Earhart was awarded. No distinguished flying cross is visible, and Amelia never actually received the major's insignia that Irene was wearing. The decorations are far from the long and short of Class's argument, however. He delved into Irene's life story, uncovering a mysterious absence of information. Or, to be more accurate, he found an absence of information which he interpreted as mysterious. But when Class published his book in 1970, Irene was furious and flatly denied all his claims, stating, I am not a mysterious woman. I am not Amelia Earhart. This is nonsense. Irene called Class's book a poorly documented hoax and proceeded to file a $1.5 million lawsuit against its publisher, McGraw-Hill. She submitted a lengthy affidavit with her suit refuting the theory and explaining that she was a twice-married amateur flyer and housewife. The parties eventually reached a private settlement, and the book was pulled from the market. But much to Irene's chagrin, Class never gave up on his claims. When she died, he attempted to get fingerprints from her corpse, although his request was denied. 
Well, the theory has outlasted both Bolam, who died in 1982, and Class, who died in 2016. It has been kept alive by numerous other books, including one as recently as 2003, Amelia Earhart Survived, by Roland C. Reinach, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel. But Reinach's book, like Class's, is based on speculation and personal testimony. Or, to quote Time Magazine's review of the Class book, its argument hinges on a slithering foundation of fanciful codes, anagrams, leading but unanswered questions and hints. One of Class's major justifications for his argument was the physical resemblance between Irene and Amelia. Reinach's 2003 book offers a computerized age progression image of Amelia at age 75, placing it side by side with a photograph of Irene at age 74. The photographs do look remarkably similar, but a closer examination reveals that while matching clothing, hair, and jewelry in the two photos help evoke the women's similarities, their features actually have some notable differences. Irene's nose is larger and her nostrils more flared than Amelia's. Irene's upper lip is straight across the top, whereas Amelia's has a distinct dip in the center. Irene is missing the mole on the lower left-hand side of Amelia's face and the gap between her two front teeth. These are all changes which surgery could easily make. But if Amelia really went to the lengths of changing her appearance with surgery, why wouldn't she change her appearance more extensively to avoid exactly the situation she found herself in with Jervis? It seems that Class was simply taken with his impression of the two women's similarities and ran with it. Uh, we give this entire wild theory a 1 out of 10. While it's certainly imaginative and does work with tons of different pieces of information, the evidence just doesn't add up. Such an extravagantly expansive theory would demand just as extravagant evidence to back it up. But theories like these tend to persist in the public imagination, even after they've been clearly debunked, especially since there's no obvious answer to the mystery. Amelia's disappearance is simply too famous and surprising for some people to accept as an accident. But our last theory takes a very different approach. This one is all about material proof, including bones. And it has nothing to do with Japanese-American relations. It's so convincing that then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said it carried all our hopes. Coming up, we dive into the castaway theory, which has dug up a fair number of artifacts to support its claims. Now, back to the story. Since the early days after her disappearance, there was speculation that Amelia Earhart may have been a spy. A theory given form and detail by the 1943 film Flight for Freedom. In the 1970s, the idea was given new life by the theories of one Joseph Jervis, a former Air Force major who was sure he had encountered Amelia Earhart on Long Island in 1943. Joe Class, inspired by Jervis's story, wove a complicated, expansive, and extremely speculative theory that Amelia Earhart had been captured by the Japanese, repatriated to the U.S., and started a new life as Irene Bolam in New Jersey. 
But there's little to support his argument, from motive to practicalities, and Irene's vehement denial of the whole thing certainly doesn't help its case. The theory has lived on into the new millennia, but today it's far outstripped in popularity by a very different hypothesis. Which brings us to our final theory. Amelia and Fred crash-landed at Nikumaroro Island, 405 miles southwest of Howland Island. For some perspective on distances here, that's far closer than the 950 miles to the Marshall Islands. The theory can trace its roots back to the early days of the disappearance. During the search and rescue mission, radio men detected 57 signals that could have come from Amelia's Lockheed Electra. Of those 57, it got bearings on six. And of those six, four were clustered around the South Phoenix Islands. That's certainly a high enough number to be intriguing. But the numbers are still far from enough to confirm that the Electra was at the South Phoenix Islands. Still, the USS Colorado was dispatched to investigate. The ship, along with its three float planes, made a search of the cluster of islands. And according to the official report, a search pilot saw signs of recent habitation there. They didn't see any people, and nobody waved them down, so the search team left and the Navy turned its attention to other leads. But what makes that report of recent habitation so interesting is that the island had been uninhabited for 40 years. This thread was picked up in 1988 by Rick Gillespie, a charter pilot, aviation accident investigator, and founder of the nonprofit, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGER. Gillespie was intrigued by the possibility that Amelia and Fred, having missed Howland Island, might have aimed for the British-controlled South Phoenix Islands. There were those reports of the radio signals, four of them total, ending on July 13th. Gillespie theorized that Amelia and Fred might have landed on the flat coral reefs surrounding one of the islands. Then, around the 13th, their plane was swept away with the tides before the Navy search party got to them. The original search party's report of recent habitation was especially interesting to Gillespie. And then there was his analysis of the radio information. Amelia's last transmission to the Itasca stated, We are on the line of position 157-337. We'll repeat this message on 6,210 kilocycles. We are now running north and south. Line of position 157-337 indicates that the plane was flying on a northwest to southeast navigational line, presumably the one that bisected Howland Island. So when Amelia and Fred last transmitted, they would have either flown northwest or southeast on the line to find Howland. To the northwest of Howland is open ocean for thousands of miles. But if they flew to the south, they would have eventually reached the Phoenix Islands, and specifically the island that's now called Nicomororo. These speculations launched the first of Tiger's trips to Nicomororo in 1989 to search for clues and evidence that Amelia and Fred had been there. Since then, Tiger has run a dozen expeditions to Nicomororo, or Niku, as they call it. 
The organization has become largely dedicated to spreading the word of Amelia's crash landing on the reefs of the small island. And it's made some fascinating finds over the years. Some of these are general American goods that Amelia and Fred might have had on board their plane, like a zipper, shards of American-made bottles, and a jar matching the ones used by an American freckle ointment company during the 1930s. But these could just as easily have been left by Gilbertese natives who lived on the island from 1936 into the 1960s, or the U.S. Coast Guardsmen there throughout World War II. But there are some surprising finds that seem to have a more telling relationship to Amelia and Fred. Some are metal fragments which seem to be airplane parts. But none of these parts have ever been definitively matched to Amelia's Lockheed Electra. Well, then there's the shoe. Or rather, the left sole and heel of a shoe. Tiger has identified it as the kind of Oxford Amelia wore during her flight and noted that it's a woman's size nine, which they determined from photos of Amelia was more or less her shoe size. But there are a few problems with Tiger's analysis. First of all, the president of the company that manufactured the shoe described it as a unisex item, meaning that it could have been a man's shoe. But even more telling, Amelia's sister and two surviving pairs of her shoes all indicate that she wore a woman's size six. The shoe couldn't have been hers. But we're not done sifting through Tiger's evidence yet. There are still the bones. These bones were discovered on the island back in 1940. The first medical officer determined that the bones belonged to a Polynesian male. But a second doctor, Dr. D.W. Hoodless of the Central Medical School in Fiji, re-examined and measured the bones in 1941. He concluded they were the remains of a 5-foot, 5.5-inch male between 45 to 55 years old and either European or half-caste. After that examination, the bones vanished. No one has seen them since, although Tiger has done its best to find them. Because Tiger is sure that the bones belong to Amelia Earhart. Between 1998 and 2018, three different analysis of the examination results have given differing opinions of the bones. The first says they are actually more likely female than male. The next claims there is no reason to doubt the original analysis, and the bones are most likely those of a middle-aged European. Even a 1940 doctor who was not trained in modern forensic anthropology would have been unlikely to mistake a slender woman for a stocky male. But the 2018 assessment compared Hoodless's measurements with photographs of Amelia and counterclaimed that the bones were almost certainly Amelia Earhart. As far as Tiger is concerned, this is all the proof it needs. It takes the assessment as evidence that Amelia died on Niku Mororo. Still, the debate can't ever be finalized because it's all based on speculation. Speculation that Hoodless's measurements and visual analyses were either correct or incorrect. Speculation about Amelia's own measurements based on photographs. But never fear, Tiger has another piece of evidence. A slim scrap of aluminum. 
While this piece of aluminum is thinner than the metal used in the Lockheed Electra, Tiger concluded that based on its rivet patterns, it might have been a patch used to repair damage to the plane. But a team of experts disagreed, including engineers and workmen who helped build Earhart's airplane. While the aluminum likely came from a plane, that plane wasn't Amelia's. But there's one more piece of evidence, an archival photograph. This photo was taken in October 1937 by Eric Bevington, a British colonial officer. That's just three months after Earhart disappeared. A British freighter had run aground years before on the northwest corner of the island, and the young officer snapped a picture of it. But it's not the photo's main subject that garnered Tiger's interest. It's a small smudge to the left, sticking up out of the water, which Tiger insists is the Lockheed Electra's landing gear. This photograph drummed up a new round of support for Tiger and its hypothesis. It even caught the attention of Dr. Robert Ballard, the famed ocean explorer who discovered the underwater remains of the Titanic. Dr. Ballard, with funding from the National Geographic Society, departed for Nicomororo on August 7, 2019, to run a high-tech underwater search for the remains of Amelia's plane. The results of the search will be released on an October 20th television program filmed by National Geographic. This is exciting news. The result of Ballard's search may help to put an end to this theory one way or another. But unfortunately, the odds of that are lower than one might hope. Niku Mororo is the tiny top of an enormous underwater mountain. So there's no guarantee that Ballard will see everything down in the depths around its shores. Fragments of the Lockheed Electra could easily get hidden away in dark nooks and crannies. So if Ballard doesn't find anything, it's unlikely Tiger and its supporters will give up hope. But is that hope warranted? Well, probably not. We give this theory a 5 out of 10 because it does have some reasonable speculation behind it, and it seems logically possible. But the problem is, there's no hard proof, and the odds still seem higher that Amelia crashed somewhere closer to Howland Island, not 350 miles off course. It's also not to Tiger's credit that their entire raison d'etre is based on one foregone conclusion. Going into any investigation with a single outcome in mind is a clearly biased approach. They may be finding evidence because they're looking for it, rather than approaching each development of the search with a mind open to all possibilities. But Tiger has come to garner the support and funding of a wide variety of well-respected mainstream actors, not just Ballard and National Geographic. In 1997, the Discovery Channel paid $50,000 to make a one-hour documentary about one of the trips to the island. ABC TV sent a three-person documentary crew on another trip. The independent television network paid $300,000 for media rights on a 2001 expedition. And in 2012, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sent the organization off on its journey with kind, encouraging words. Even if you do not find what you seek, there is great honor and possibility in the search itself. So, like our lost heroine, 
you will all carry our hopes. The fact that Clinton held a press conference about Tiger's journey shows just how widely this theory has been accepted. But the amounts of money that news outlets paid to get in on the story cast another shadow of doubt over the whole operation. It's in Tiger's financial interest to keep the theory alive. All the money seems to go back into the organization's expeditions to Nicomaroro. And in fact, plenty more money floods into the organization from its own members who are passionate about the cause of finding Amelia Earhart. But regardless, for the explorers to get their adventure kick, the possibility that Amelia crashed at Nicomaroro needs to be kept alive however much the truth needs to be stretched to make that happen. So for all the fascinating and abundant conspiracy theories, we're sticking with the crash and sink theory. Amelia and Fred likely died a clear-cut, quick death by drowning, arguably a better way to go than a slow, devastating death on a tiny, uninhabited island. The aviators took off from Ley, New Guinea, and along the course of their flight, several pieces of human error led them to miss Howland Island and run out of fuel in the middle of the endless Pacific. There was the confusion about the frequencies between the Lockheed Electra and the Itasca. While Amelia apparently got word that the Itasca was planning to use different frequencies than she, that issue clearly was not resolved adequately. Perhaps better, clearer communication from the outset would have allowed the plane and boat to make contact. Perhaps if a pilot, instead of Amelia's publisher husband, had been in charge of making arrangements with the Navy and Coast Guard, Amelia and Fred would have made it to Howland. But then there was the issue with the radio receptor. It blew a fuse back in Australia, seems to have broken again in Ley, and likely malfunctioned once more mid-flight, since Amelia never received the many messages the Itasca was sending her. But the intrigue likely ends there. Poor communication and technical trouble brought down one of the best pilots in the game. All the way to the bottom of the Pacific. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 